Bibles out and turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, today's text should be found around page 1200 in your pew Bible, or you can slip out and grab a blue Bible off of the bookshelf in the foyer and keep it. That is for you. James chapter 4. This is God's Word. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word to us in James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, this ends the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Uh, may the words of my mouth now and the meditation of our hearts together be pleasing to you this morning, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, the chief of police in Laurel, Maryland, David Crawford, handed in his badge in 2010. And then he became an arsonist. It's quite a career change, isn't it? Over the next decade or so, Crawford set a dozen fires in six counties, uh, many caught on camera, tar targeting people he considered to be enemies. Uh, according to prosecutors, an ex-city official, uh, three former law enforcement colleagues, including an ex-police chief from Laurel, uh, two relatives, a neighbor, and two of his chiropractors. It seems he was not a well-adjusted individual. <laughs> I mean, it's chiropractors, seriously. <clears throat> he was arrested in 2021, sentenced two years later, this year, to eight life terms served concurrently with an additional 75 years on top of that. He pleaded not guilty despite video evidence and a secret encoded hit list found on his phone. 
When he was given an opportunity to speak in trial, Crawford said, with God, all things are possible. I watched a news interview with one of the victims, and she said that was so hypocritical when he said that. I had to laugh about the chiropractors, but I can't laugh about the hypocrisy. I see a lot of David Crawford in our passage this morning, and I wonder if there's a lot of David Crawford in our hearts. Uh, a sworn officer of the peace, uh, setting fires throughout his community, and invoking God in the process with no apparent remorse or apology. Have you ever been guilty of this? You're called to be a peacemaker, uh, but have you ever been someone who can't make peace? Instead, you just can't stop setting fires while claiming the name of Jesus, invoking God in the process. That's really what James is addressing here. Uh, he's talking to those who should be sowing a harvest of righteousness by making peace with an others-focused religion that he's been talking about. But instead, they're setting the Christian community ablaze with their self-focused religion, all while claiming the name of Jesus, all while invoking God as the one they serve. So let me lay out where we're going this morning. You know, it's kind of hard to choose a title for this sermon. We've been choosing titles like Humble Faith Blank, and there's a lot of good options in this passage, but I chose Humble Faith Resists the Devil because I think we need to think about it more often. Uh, of all the exhortations uh, James gives in this passage, that one, Resist the Devil, it really helps to underscore the devil's work to devour the church by sowing division in the church and selfish ambition in the church and bitter jealousy in the church. This self-centered religion rather than true, others-oriented Christianity. So I think this idea of resisting the devil uh, is important to consider. It also takes us, I think, in a really remarkable way to Jesus as we consider how he resisted the devil, how the devil fled from him. So I want us to think uh, really carefully this morning about the reality of spiritual warfare and spiritual resistance. How does the devil tempt a church to tear one another apart? And what would a Christian community be and do and accomplish? What would heritage be and do and accomplish for the kingdom of God's marvelous light if we resisted that darkness? If we resisted the devil and we sought the good way of life that God is calling us to? I would propose to you that because Jesus resisted the devil for our rescue, uh, we must resist the devil's attack on Christian unity by following this wise path of humble faith. Because Jesus resisted the devil for your rescue, you must resist the devil's attack on Christian unity by following the wise path of humble faith. So let's simplify what we're talking about this morning, these demonic provocations against Christian unity. Uh, we'll call what James describes in this passage church fights. We all know what a church fight looks like, don't we? That's what James is talking about, church fights. And he teaches us three important things to know about church fights. Church fights are fueled by spiritual warfare. Church fights are symptomatic of spiritual adultery. And church fights are overcome by spiritual resistance. So, first important thing to know about church fights from James 4. Church fights are fueled by spiritual warfare. Uh, look again with me at verses 1 to 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In this passage, James is an apostolic fire marshal. He's considered the burn pattern. He's looked at the devastation, the damage that's been done by these wildfires raging within the churches he's writing to. And he's discovered the accelerant. He's discovered the arsonist. What caused the fire? What causes quarrels, he asks. And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You know, most of us, if we're honest, we would say, what causes church fights? Well, what causes them is that I'm right and they're wrong. That's what causes church fights. Not so fast, says James. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The root of the problem fights in the community of believers, dissension, disunity, it's self-centeredness. Remaining sinful passions, sinful desires waging war within us. It's not the persecution that these churches face. That exacerbates the issue, but that doesn't cause it. It's not just that they've had a bad week. It's not just that they got up on the wrong side of the spiritual bed. No, it's, it's the remaining sin within them, within us. Sinful desires that are at war within us. And then because of spiritual warfare, demonic attack from without, the devil's game plan to tank the church and its unity, uh, we become so inwardly focused on our own self-centered wants and desires. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Uh, an old demon named Screwtape counsels his young nephew Wormwood on the art of deceiving believers and leading them away from God. And he talks about a priest in the book, a priest named Father Spike. Great name for a priest. Father Spike. And Father Spike is really helpful to the devil's cause. Here's what Screwtape says about Father Spike. The humans are often puzzled to understand the range of his opinions. Why Father Spike is one day almost a communist and the next not so far from some kind of theocratic fascism. One day a scholastic and the next prepared to deny any human reason altogether. One day immersed in politics and the day after declaring that all the states of this world are equally under judgment. We might be wondering what's going on here, but Screwtape uh, knows exactly what's going on. We, of course, he says, see the connecting link, which is hatred. The man cannot bring himself to teach anything which is not calculated to mock, grieve, puzzle, or humiliate his parents and their friends. That's what Father Spike is all about. Hatred. He isn't motivated to preach for, out of love for God and his neighbor, um, preaching the truth in love. He's, he hates his upbringing. He hates his parents. And there's spiritual attack happening. C.S. Lewis goes on to describe him being under attack from without. He has this hatred within and this attack from the outside. And he's being led to this hatred, even in the way he preaches. He's going to preach his way out of association with his family to their humiliation and shame. You might say, well, I'm no Father Spike. I'm not a preacher. I never preach. Well, as we've said, particularly over the last couple of chapters, uh, while James is addressing teachers and those who desire to teach, uh, it's kind of a if the shoe fits, wear it kind of thing. Because the same struggles are struggles we all face. The tongue isn't just a hellish wildfire if you're a teacher. It's a hellish wildfire if you're, if, you're a, if you're a teacher or if you're a plumber or if you're a politician, if you're a parent, if you're a sibling. 
These are things we all wrestle with and deal with, so we need to consider it. Whatever your particular calling is in life, you have to consider these heart-level things that James is getting at. They're important to reckon with. We have to repent when it's necessary. And it's really amazing how far off track we can be, even as we claim the name of Jesus. He's writing to these people, and they're a church, and they consider themselves Christians, but because they're coveting and dissatisfied, they're fighting with their fellow believers to get whatever it is they think they want. And it even shows up in the way they pray. I find this really interesting. They're sitting around praying for these things. You desire, and you do not have, James says, so you murder. I take that as hating one another. Jesus said to hate your brother or sister is to murder them. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, these people, even the way they pray is distorted because of these desires within them. They say they follow Jesus, but they've crashed through the guardrails, and they're careening downhill away from Jesus on the path of worldly wisdom. It seems they've really set aside heavenly wisdom and the law of God entirely. At least they've decided that they're the arbiters of judgment. They're the ones who can wag their finger at people to say that they're wrong. When all of us should really stand under God's law and recognize that all of us fail and all of us deserve to be condemned by it. We should run together from the law to the gospel, to Christ, for his forgiveness and grace. Skip ahead with me for a moment uh, to what James says in verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You could preach a whole sermon just on those two verses. Uh, many have, believe me. I've listened to a lot of sermons on it this week, trying to figure out exactly what's going on here. I've heard that since it's daylight savings, I get an extra hour to preach this morning, <laughs> right? I guess I better start cutting some things. No, I think I can summarize what's happening here. Remember that this theme of the law and how we shouldn't be judgmental people is this thread that runs throughout James. Um, he's been tying this together all the way back in chapter 2. We're told that judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. As Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Condemn not lest you be condemned. Now, I'm not going to include all the caveats about times when it's important and appropriate to judge or what about Paul in this or that scenario because as we've said, we want to hear James's scriptural accent. We want to hear what James has to say to us today. And he's talking about this idea that many want a bullhorn and a bully pulpit when what they need is a big dose of humility. A big dose of humility. When they set aside the law and they slander their brothers and sisters with no regard to the fact that that itself is a sin, they're slandering the law itself. They're denigrating the law. They're denigrating God himself because they're setting themselves up over and above God and his law. But James reminds us there is only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Again, the devil, by hurling temptations at them in the midst of their bitter trials, he is loving this. The devil is smiling like the Grinch who stole Christmas. 
That evil grin is just growing on his face. This church has been taken down the path of least resistance. It's easier to just do what your heart wants than to submit yourself to God and his law. But ultimately, it's a path of painful disillusionment. It can only disillusion us when we follow this path of worldly wisdom because it only takes us further and further away from Jesus. Further away from Jesus. The wisdom of God who came to make us complete and whole again. And again, the devil's smiling. He loves this. The further he can get churches in the diaspora and churches in the 21st century and heritage here in Warrington away from Christ with infighting and contention and self-seeking and selfish ambition away from pure and undefiled religion that cares for widows and orphans and those in need and those who are helpless and distressed and then leading us instead into the staining influence of the world's wisdom, the world's philosophy, the world's values. If he can do all that, that's a win for his side. That's something for Wormwood to write home to screw tape about. <clears throat> and I say it's spiritual warfare, and even as I say it, I wonder if you're thinking maybe, is this a little too sensational? Is it just a little too much to be focusing on so much spiritual warfare? I mean, we're all sinful, right? Why bring the devil into it? We're already sinful. I think it's a fair point, and we're all sinful, and sin and flesh can hold their own on their own without the devil, but James lets us in on the fact that this really is spiritual warfare. He tells us in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So let's not be so 21st century or so reformed or so whatever that we minimize the reality of the devil's program of attack against the church. The fact that he is a living and active enemy seeking to devour the church. He can't win but he can scratch and he can bite and he can inflict a lot of damage like a roaring lion trying to devour us. We just sang about it last week, right? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. It wouldn't be a good Presbyterian church if we hadn't sang that on Reformation Sunday. But it's not just something you sing on Reformation Sunday. At least I hope that's not what it is to us. But I think sometimes it's hard as 21st century Christians to think beyond our plastic cars and the apps on our phones, and to see the real spiritual warfare that's against us and against Christ and his church. The story goes that the reformer Martin Luther once hurled an inkwell at the devil and it shattered against the wall because he thought the devil was tempting him when he wrote. I think we could all take a cue from Luther about the reality of the devil's active program to tank what God is doing in his church. Luther didn't shy away from recognizing the devil's attacks Famously, he wrote to a friend who was struggling with spiritual discouragement, and he said, try as hard as you can to despise those thoughts which are induced by the devil. In this sort of temptation and struggle, contempt is the best and easiest method of winning over the devil. Laugh your adversary to scorn. And of course, there's that amazing observation about when the devil threatens us to condemn us because we've sinned and we know we're guilty. Again, quoting Luther, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak like this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. You see, we need to face the reality of what we're up against. Uh, we can't for a second imagine that the tension and disagreements and impasses that we experience 
uh, in the church are merely because we're sinners. Uh, there is a concerted, calculated spiritual attack happening. It's so real that James is compelled to say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, this humbles us when we recognize it's not just that we're sinners, that's humbling enough, but we have a powerful enemy who we can't withstand on our own. We need grace. And thankfully, we have that wonderful line, don't we? Where James points us to Jesus. But he gives more grace. So, that's the first important thing to know about church fights. Church fights are fueled by spiritual warfare. The second important thing to know about church fights is that they are symptoms of spiritual adultery. Church fights are symptoms of spiritual adultery. Look again with me at verses 4 and 5. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James' prophetic voice reaches a crescendo in verse 4. You adulterous people. You adulterous people. I think this is one reason when James says you covet it and do not have, so you murder, that he's referring to hatred. This spiritual murder. Because here he's referring to spiritual adultery. It's something that God's covenant people were long called out for by the Old Testament prophets. Spiritual adultery. I just wonder... It's hard to imagine as a pastor being ever so bold as to write such a letter. I mean, can you imagine that? Dear Heritage Presbyterian Church. Um, I saw a general outline of Paul's letters one time, and it went like this. Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. <laughs> Timothy says hi. Right? That's in a nutshell. I'm not sure I could get away with that sermon outline. And I don't know how James gets away with this, but he does. Because sometimes it's what we need to hear. We need to be told how far off course we truly are. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you hear what James is saying here? He's saying that through the love of the world, by taking on its wisdom, uh, taking on this wisdom that our sinful desires so easily latch onto, uh, we've broken covenant with God. We demonstrate by our attitudes and our actions that we have broken our covenant with God. It sounds catastrophic, and it's certainly not great. That's why we need that line that James gives us. But he gives more grace. And a picture that's more relatable to us today. Spiritual adultery is slipping the wedding ring off your finger and into your pocket and going and seeking love out there with the world and its wisdom and its ways. That's how vivid this picture James is painting is. It's how crucial it is for us to understand it. He refuses to let us remain complacent with this double-minded way of life. We can't say we're so thankful for grace. We want to be devoted to Jesus, yet we're going and embracing the ways of the world and the way we treat one another, and the way we live out the Christian life. That's practical atheism. It's real idolatry, and it's spiritual adultery. The relationship of God's people with their covenant God in the Old Testament was described as a marriage and idolatry, worshiping false gods, it was this spiritual infidelity. Or using another illustration that James gives, it's this double-mindedness. Remember, he's talked about that, having a double-minded way of life. He's already addressed this. In James 1, he said that whoever wants wisdom in the battleground of trials just has to ask God for it. God stands ready to give it. 
Ask without doubting, with a mind singularly focused on God, and He will give it to you. To a church full of fights, James says, you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on what you want to do. He points out that this selfish, uh, self-centered ambition in our attitudes and actions reveals that we're not serving the Lord alone. So, what's the answer? What's the answer to that? Live according to the wisdom of God. Is it that simple? To quote Bob Newhart, just stop it. Is it that simple? No one ever just stops something by being told to just stop something. We can try, but we're not very good at it. What's the answer when church fights and all the other ways that our self-centeredness shows up in Christian community? Uh, instead of this pure, undefiled religion that seeks the care of others, what's the answer when that shows up and reveals that we're spiritual adulterers who need to repent? The answer is not try harder, do better. It's looking to the one who did it. It's looking to the one who did it. It's the path of humble faith. When we're walking in wisdom, we're walking close to the one who did it for us. We're walking close to Jesus. It's hard to walk close to Jesus when you're like a runaway bride following the world's wisdom, like a groom with cold feet who doesn't want to be near him. But walking in wisdom, God's redeemed you to be his and his alone. We walk with Jesus. Uh, Verse 4 is tricky. I'm not going to go into all of the various options here, but I will say one key point about this verse, and it's that it's really tough. And there are passages like this in Scripture. But we still wrestle with them. James says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit He has made to dwell within us? So the question is, what Spirit is He talking about, and what Scripture is He referring to? It's a reference to Scripture, but it's hard to find a quote in Scripture that says that. After sifting through a lot of these opinions and and options, I think this is what's going on. Curtis Geese is right in his commentary in James when he says, in 4.5, James likely encapsulates a theme of Scripture regarding God's jealousy for His people. He says, the Scripture says, and he refers to this theme that we see over and over of God's holy jealousy for His people because His people are His. God yearns jealously over you. Over you because you are His. So what do we do when we see God's earnest love for us, this beautiful, holy jealousy over us, His love for us, and then in light of that, we see our ugly, wayward infidelity and our sin? Is it curtains on our relationship with God, or is there hope? There's always hope. Finally, church fights are overcome by spiritual resistance. Look again with me at the passage, picking up in verse 6. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34 Towards the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Favor, grace to the humble. Can we see this in Jesus' description of the way up by going down? Uh, Being brought low uh, to be raised up? This describes Jesus. This describes what he did. The way of humility is the way of the gospel. 
And it was certainly the way of Jesus. He was brought low to be raised up. Though Jesus is God, eternal, He humbled Himself in every way to accomplish your redemption. And then we're called to have the mind of Christ. This humility that He demonstrated in His own life as He accomplished your rescue. As sinners, our humble faith and repentance is spiritual resistance. Our humble faith and our repentance is our spiritual resistance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. We have to repent. and We have to take our sins seriously. But there's good news when we look to Jesus by humble faith. The humility that undergirds our repentance was demonstrated perfectly by Jesus in His spiritual resistance when He was tempted by the devil. We need to look at that. We need to look at how Jesus resisted the devil because if we're to resist in the same power of the Spirit, we ought to consider how Jesus resisted. So maybe you remember the story. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has been baptized, identifying Himself with the people He would redeem. And then He's led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And His spiritual resistance was key to our rescue because if Jesus, through selfish ambition, or self-centeredness, had abandoned the script and decided to seek his own glory instead of the glory of the Father, all would have been lost. We would not be sitting here saved this morning. But he was a humble servant. Though he was the lawgiver, he submitted to the law. And he humbled himself. He put himself under the law to redeem those through his obedience and suffering who were under the law. The final temptation really highlights the point. It offered Jesus a way around suffering to glory. We read in Matthew 4, 8 and following, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You see, God's nearness is our good. Humility takes us low to be lifted up by God. God's not mad at you. He is jealous for you. He desires you to be close to him. We're to draw near to God by humble faith, trusting in God's goodness towards us. His goodness in Jesus. This will for our lives He's revealed in His law as we follow the way of Jesus who perfectly fulfilled it on our behalf. This is the way out of church fights and into peace. This is the way into true, others-oriented Christianity. Jesus did it as a Spirit-filled man in the flesh, but also God in the flesh. We do it as redeemed sinners looking to Him, clinging to the grace that He accomplished for us. The grace that He provides when we ask for it. And we're promised this, the devil will flee. So because Jesus resisted the devil for our rescue, we must resist the devil's attacks on Christianity. Relying on God's sanctifying work in our hearts as we follow this wise path of humble faith. Let's pray together. Father, as we confess so often, we're self-focused instead of others-focused. 
Though you tell us that's the way of true humility, of seeking peace, of Christianity that takes care to avoid the world's influence and cares for those in need. We're spiritual arsonists and spiritual adulterers. Help us by your grace to turn our flippant disregard for our sin and our selfish, jealous judgment of others into mourning over our waywardness. And give us your grace and repentance. Help us to run to Jesus, who humbled himself all the way to the cross for us. We long to be faithfully and fully yours. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.